Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Well, would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We've just heard the guy sing about it. Now we're going to study it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We've been talking about the proof of a surrendered life. Uh, this is something that you can't fake. It's either there or it's not there. And the Apostle Paul has done a marvelous job under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God bringing this truth to light for us. And you know, folks, there's no mistake that chapter 13 follows chapter 12 and comes before chapter 14. There's just no mistake. And of course, they didn't have chapters and verses. What I'm talking about is this passage or this portion of Paul's letter is injected there for a very, very good reason. Because what's going on in Corinth had no love in it whatsoever. In fact, when he finishes chapter 12, and he says, I have a better way. Let me show you a better way. Instead of getting on this endless pursuit of gifts, oh no, no, what are you doing? You pursue the giver. You attach to him. And he'll produce a gift in you far beyond anything else you've ever talked about. It's called the fruit of his spirit. And that fruit is, of course, his love in us. Verse 1 says, And if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Language without love, any language without love, is nothing much but a noise, irritating noise. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. Nothing meaning a zero with the lid kicked off. Not one single thing. I may push myself up in front of others and talk about what I've done for God, but I'm nothing. I'm nothing. And if I have, give all of my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but not have love, it, it profits me nothing. Oh, it'll profit them. I mean, they, they're, they're fed, but it doesn't profit me anything. When I stand before God one day, there's no reward for anything I've done because I didn't act it by faith. I didn't have that love ingredient, which only comes from surrender in my life. Love is patient, he says. Love is kind. And those two words, could, he could have added to that list very quickly, but those two words describing God's love is so appropriate to the context of Corinthians because there was no patience and they were people intolerant of one another and there was no kindness. They were more interested in what benefited themselves and what benefited others. The word kind has the idea of being useful to others. And then after he, he, he identifies this love and he identifies it with patient and kind, Macrothumia, long-suffering with the intolerable ways of others, and then the kindness, that which 
only God can produce and a usefulness to others in the body. Then he shows, and I said last week, seven negatives. And the best four years of my life was first year math. There are eight negatives. <laughs> and I'll bring the eighth one up today. I apologize. I counted wrong. But let's begin those negatives. First of all, he says, it is not jealous. It is not. The word jealous has the idea of when a person's enjoying the Lord and walking. He, he doesn't come around and try to steal that joy away from you. He's not envious of things that are good that are, is happening to you. It's not jealous. It does not brag. In any way, it does not brag. It, does not, it is not arrogant. Fusio, it, it's not an airbag full of hot air it, saying it knows one thing but living nothing else. It does not act unbecomingly. In other words, it doesn't do things that makes you feel disgraced. It does not seek its own. It's not selfish. And for that reason, it's not provoked. And that really caught me as we preached it the last time, and I know you could tell, because people that are selfish are provoked by everybody and everything. Because it's not provoked shows that it doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. And it also, it does not take into account a wrong suffered. The word taking into account means to put it into a ledger so you can keep it for further use. <laughs> it just doesn't keep an account of the ills and the fleshly ways that people treat you. It just does not do that. Now, there is one more, which is the eighth one. I apologize, I'm counting them wrong last week, but there is eight. Verse six picks up the eighth one. It's married to a positive one. It starts off and says, does, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness in verse 6. Now, you see, love, God's love, never takes or gets satisfaction from sin. It does not do that. To rejoice in unrighteousness is when a person takes something that is wrong and makes it appear as if it's right. He's justifying sin. He's making something wrong to appear to be right. You see, if we love God, what we've got to see what the, what the Apostle Paul is saying here, if we love God, what causes him to rejoice is going to cause us to rejoice. See, that love is his quality. It's his, it's his character in us. And it's a, an effect it's having on us. It's changing the things that bring us joy. It's changing the way we see things. And so we're not going to rejoice in unrighteousness. You know, in the church, and I'm sure it was probably going on in Corinth, one of the ways in which we do this and don't even realize we do it when we rejoice in sin is on both ends of the spectrum is when we gossip about someone. Do you realize that gossip? How many times have you been in church over the years and heard somebody talk about gossip? Well, I guess the reason they do is because it's been around for a while. Gossip usually has an element of truth in it. There's enough truth to get somebody's attention. Normally, it's not the whole story. But when we, re we just really rejoice in taking a, a juicy morsel about somebody and taking it to somebody else and spreading it, that is when we have just stepped outside the barrier, the line, and now we're rejoicing in unrighteousness, which proves we're not filled with the Spirit of God. Because you see, that, that a person filled with God's love cannot do that. We'll see what it does instead of that in a, in a few moments. But it does not do that. You know, all of us have been damaged by this on both ends. You know, if a person wouldn't receive it, how many times have we been in the flesh and we just chose to walk after the flesh and somebody calls us and we listen? <laughs> you see, it's just as much on the listening end as it is on the giving end. And what it does, we're rejoicing in somebody else's unrighteousness and the person telling us is rejoicing in telling it. And that's 
what Paul is alluding to, not just that one sin, but just to help us understand how Christians can take something that's wrong and make it appear as if it's right. And you know, there's nothing more painful than for somebody, even at church, to walk by and smile at you and just, oh, as if they love you. And as soon as your back is turned, they stab you in the back. I used to talk about the folks that would go home and have me for dinner. <laughs> but it's happened to all of us. It's happened to all of us. But here's the interesting thing. I could pick up on this because there's a, there's a great weakness inside of me of the wounds that have come over the years, but I can't do it. <laughs> what, what God would say right back to me is saying, hey, dummy, while you're talking about how much you've been hurt and trying to get other people to think about how much they've been hurt, what's the context? The context is you can't think that way towards those people because if God is producing his love in you, you are already patient with him and not only that, you're kind towards them, the ones who've talked about you. So you can't find any solace here in the fact that somebody has gossiped about you. You can't do it. You can't find any solace in the fact that you've gossiped about somebody else. The only solace we can find is in our surrender to Christ because his love in us changes our whole way that we see others, no matter if we're on the hurtful end of something or we're on the end of, of causing that hurt, it doesn't matter. We, love changes us. It changes us. It's Christ in us, changing us from within. And so there are two positives that he gives. Two great examples of what love is. It's patient. <laughs> and that word patient, macrothumia, it bears up under the intolerable ways that flesh can treat you. But not only that, it's kind. It goes a step further. What can I do to help you? What can I do to see that you can change in your walk with God? And then the negatives of what it's not. And, and of course, we see what it is by seeing what it's not. And finally, he comes back to five more positives. And I, I know I counted these right. Five positives. Now, what we're seeing here is what love is, when, when it's absent, what it's like, and now he's going to go, when it's present, what it's like. What's it like when love is present? What's it like when we're being filled with the Spirit of God and God's producing that marvelous quality of love, His love, not our love, His love through us? Well, the first one is found there in verse 6 of chapter 13. He says, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, and married to that thought... And you can't understand the first part unless you understand the second part. It says, but rejoices with truth. It rejoices with the truth. Now, what kind of truth is Paul talking about here? Boy, I'm just checking this out, I found all kinds of ideas what he's talking about with truth. But what I think he's referring to is the truth of the Word of God. And I'll tell you why. The definite article is there. And when the definite article is put before truth, it's the truth, not just truth. Without the definite article, it qualifies. With the definite article, it identifies. And to me, what he's saying is, this person cannot in any way rejoice with unrighteousness because he rejoices not just in the word, but the, the, it's a daily, with the word of the truth, with the truth of God's word. You see, righteousness comes from the word of God. And when you enact by faith, when you, when you live by faith, righteousness is going to come forth. So with that understanding, if you love the word of God, you love it, and you love truth, and therefore you love righteousness, you have to not be able to rejoice with unrighteousness. See, that's, that's the opposite of it. 
where you find people that are in love with God, in love with His Word, they cannot in any way make something that's unrighteous appear to be righteous. They can't stand it. They can't rejoice because they only rejoice in the truth. Now hang on with me for a second. Why, did Paul, why does Paul do this right here? When it's present, why does he do this? Because he's exemplifying it. This is key. God's love, now listen to me, cannot in any way rejoice with wrong doctrine. Now hang on to what I'm saying here. Hang on to what I'm saying when you love somebody and it's God's love in you produced by your surrender to him and it's him causing that love to be manifest in your life, you can in no way rejoice with anyone who has false doctrine. Now you can love that person but you cannot in any way rejoice because your rejoicing is only with the truth. Truth does matter. Truth does matter when it comes to this aspect of loving others. You take love, which is what we're talking about. You take truth and you take righteousness and they're inseparable. They're like three parts to something that's a whole. You alter any of them, you weaken them all. I've heard this expression so many times. Well, the important thing is that we just love each other because it doesn't matter what their doctrine is. We just need to love one another. That's yes, but also no. Because John tells us if a person's doctrine is wrong, don't even let him in the door and don't even have dinner with him. So there is something to the fact that when you are manifesting not your love, not your love, but God's love, there's something in you because it's God in you that loves what he's spoken and you love truth. You love truth. And so therefore love and truth absolutely go together. When we weaken, as I said a moment ago, any one of those three, love, truth, righteousness, you've weakened all three of them. You cannot do it. Now, that's a tough one. He doesn't explain a whole lot more, although the ones that follow help us to deal with somebody perhaps that are caught up in untruth. But I'll tell you what, you cannot rejoice. You cannot rejoice when there's false doctrine around in a believer's life. You cannot do it. What's Paul doing? Paul is writing to the church of Corinth who is absolutely upside down. Their doctrine is wrong. When it comes to gifts, when it comes to manifestations, when it comes, he, they're wrong. And what is he doing? He says back in the earlier chapters of the book, I'm not writing these things to shame you. I'm writing these things as a father would write his son because a father loves his son. I'm saying the hard things to you because I want you to be in love with God's truth. I want you to come back to where now God can work in your life afresh, but you've got to love to learn, you've got to learn to love truth. You can't rejoice in error. You can't do it and then claim to be filled with the love of God. Do you realize the whole ecumenical movement is built off the theory that if we love one another despite what we believe, everybody will be fine? That's ecumenicalism. In other words, that's universality of the saints. That's, that's just like saying, hey, everybody, everybody's fine. I'm okay, you're okay. That's not God's love. God's love is directly married to His truth. And so therefore, this person who loves, when love is present, yes, there's a caring for one another. We've already seen all of that. But there's also a rejoicing with truth, with truth, truth. You cannot rejoice in unrighteousness. There's no way you can rejoice because unrighteousness comes from error. It comes as a result of flesh. Well, what do you do with somebody that you've seen all these eight negative things in? 
the next one. It says in verse 7, love bears all things. Now the first thing you think of when you think of bearing all things is a, is a person with a big heavy load on his back and he's walking around carrying that load on his back. And the first thought that comes to your mind is, well, it just puts up with everything. It just bears all things. Isn't it wonderful just to get in to find out what it really means? As a matter of fact, if you'll see, and if you've got a good translation, it has a little mark beside verse 7, and it tells you that there's another meaning to it out in the, out in the, in the uh, side margin there if you've got a good translation. The word is stego, S-T-E-G-O, and the word stego means to cover. Matter of fact, it comes from a, a, a uh, word that means to put a covering on a house, to put a roof on a house. Whoa. Now that changes the whole idea of what he's saying here. Bears all things. Hmm. No. It puts a cover over those faults and sins of people that are treating you without the love of God. As, he, as you seek to see them changed, it puts a cover over it, the whole thing to keep them from being uh, exposed to everybody. It puts that covering over them. You see, love already has rejected all the fleshly deeds, not the people that do them, but the deeds that they do. It rejects jealousy, bragging, arrogance, things that are unbecoming, selfishness, provoked anger, resentment, unrighteousness, and false doctrine. And when it encounters these things, it loves the person who's caught up in these things. And that love builds a covering over them. It begins to feel their pain because of their fleshly choices. It begins to help bear the burden of the consequences of those fleshly choices. But it doesn't go out and parade everybody's dirty laundry before everybody. It has a, a love about it. It covers over it. It does not seek to expose. It seeks to protect. It seeks to protect the one while in the midst of that time there's a, there's a challenge to change that individual. To see God in that individual change that individual. You know, we've practiced church discipline here for quite a while. Many people have said, well, you must not be doing anything because we never see hardly anybody brought before the church. <laughs> well, part of the reason is they repent before it ever gets that far. Isn't that good? But you don't even know who they are. Isn't that good? You see, I used to be in a church and if anything went on, it was, a, it was a matter of a whole public business meeting and everybody's dirty laundry was drug out in front of everybody. And I want to tell you something, folks. If that ever starts happening around here, this is, people are going to disappear. Why would they want to come to some place that everybody wants to nail them for what they've done when the people that are nailing them usually have areas in their own life? What would happen if, they, if it was reversed? But you see, Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 12 said, Hatred stirs up strife. That's a fleshly characteristic. But love covers all transgression. Is that not a beautiful verse? Now, if you, you have somebody in your family and you see that the flesh has, has got a hold of them and jealousy and all this kind of stuff or somebody in the body of Christ and your heart is burdened towards them and your heart burden is to love them so that they might be changed by the same love that's changed you. You don't pick up the phone and call everybody. Listen, we started a prayer chain in the last church I pastored, which was a long time ago because I've been here forever. But, but when I pastored my last church, we started a prayer chain. You know what that prayer chain became? It became the best way to find out what was going on in the community. It became nothing more than a gossip sheet. There were people who would have put down, please pray for my husband, he's lost. And that sounds great on a prayer sheet until you found out he's a Sunday school teacher and a deacon. 
And the wife happened to be a little upset with him the day that she put the request down. And son, did that ever spread through the church overnight? See, love doesn't do that. Love does not do that. In fact, we had to get rid of that whole thing because all it was doing was causing people to sin when they came in and grabbed a hold of it. Love covers. Love covers. It protects. It has the idea of protecting in it. It protects. And so when you run across somebody that has any of the eight negatives of that love, then what happens is your heart is grieved, but you still love the person. So God, God has that kind of love for you and me. He, he loves us, but he, he hates the sin. And so when we come together to pray for them, we, we put a covering over them. We protect our own so that the enemy out there cannot blaspheme. Love bears all things. Well, now why does love bear all things? I mean, I mean, what's going on here? Is there any connection between these five that we're putting together? Oh, oh, oh yes. Verse 7, because it believes all things. Love bears all things because it believes all things. It refuses to yield to suspicion of doubt. Oh, man. Let me ask you a question. Next time you hear somebody about somebody you know, how quick are you to, to buy it? Or how quick are you to reject it until somebody's proven guilty. You see, with this right here, somebody is innocent until proven guilty because it believes all things. Flesh is ready to believe all the evil about somebody. Love does just the opposite. Love is confident until the very last, until absolutely proven to the very last, and then will not give up as we'll see in the next quality. Now, isn't it interesting? Paul takes you right down to everyday living. He takes you down to dealing with people and circumstances in your life and people that hurt you. All the, you don't need God's love manifest in your life if everybody's treating you nice. It's easy to treat them nice. It's easy to love them back. God's love is put there so that now you can treat them the way God would treat them even though they have treated you the wrong way. I remember early on in my ministry, I used to have a hit list when I prayed. <laughs> God, if you could get rid of these 10 people, we could have revival in the church. <laughs> I can see the Lord up in heaven now saying, Simon Peter, come here. Gosh, listen, listen to this. I, listen to what I just heard. And then it was like God began to pull on my heart. Wayne, I have put some of these people out in your midst just to bring you to the point to understand what you don't have that you thought you did. Now you come to admit to me that you can't love this person and I want to show how I can love that person in you. And I'll give you a different perspective towards that person. And I'll give you a heart for that person that's going to seek to protect him even though you know what he's doing is wrong. You'll still seek to protect him because you believe all things and you believe that God can change that person and you're not going to give up on that person. Love always considers a person innocent until proven guilty. I, I just wish that were true in the Baptist church. You thought I was going to say in the government, didn't you? No, I wish it was true in the Baptist church. I wish it was true in the body of Christ that people were so surrendered to God that whatever you hear, you don't take it and run with it. You stop and say, hold it. I believe in God in that person. And before I go any further, I want to make sure that what I've just heard would be correct. <laughs> That's what love would do. Love would always give your brother the benefit of the doubt. Because it's patient, remember, long-suffering. It still goes back to those first two things. It's useful, it's kind. It wants to help the situation, not hinder it, because all of us, by the grace of God, could be right in the middle of it. You know, the religious Pharisees always look for the negative in anything that Jesus did, although they proclaimed to be the most religious people on the face of the earth. Remember in Luke chapter 5, 
when they brought the, the paralytic and had to lower him through the roof and, and he healed him and immediately they began to question him because he made a statement. He said, that man, you're forgiven of your sins and they couldn't handle that. But they completely overlooked the fact that the man was healed. They were always seeming to find the negative in everything. Oh man, the negative, the negative, the negative, the negative. God's love won't let you do that because God loves believes all things. Just won't let you have that mindset. You can't do it. Remember Job's friends? Oh, Job's friends. Oh, dear God, help me never to have friends like Job had. Job, everything taken away from him, and here they come. <laughs> and they have their little opinions. And one of them said, if you'd just get right with God, God would restore every bit of it. But evidently, there must be wickedness in your life. You see, love doesn't do that. Love doesn't do that. Love believes all things. It is believing that God in the person will triumph ultimately. And even if it finds out that, the, that what it was been said is right, they trust in the God in the person. But I'll tell you something. I'm grateful that all the years I've been, you know, Haywood was talking about his years with, with June. And by the way, I liked your column. You did get the goose. No, you had it better than a goose. <laughs> did you read Caleb's, Haywood's column? He's talking about how he's been married 43 42 years to June. And that's a lot of grace God had to give to June for been married to Haywood all these years. But you know, it made me think as I was thinking, now sitting down there thinking about the message, and it made me think of all the way in which God's love in Diana has believed, not in me, but in the Christ that's in me. And when I've sinned and I've done wrong and I've been caught, I've been so transparent over the years, everybody knows what I do wrong. I mean, they might have put it in the Chattanooga free press. But Dinah, when she finds that out, doesn't give up on me. She believes all things. She believes that the God in me will triumph and she hangs on. That's what God's love does for us. That's what God's love wants to do through us. Well, why does it do that? Because love hopes all things, verse 7. You can't, you can't take this out of its context. He's not talking about the eternal hope that Jesus is coming. All that's there. We've got to stay with the context. Context of relationships. Context, people not tolerating each other. Context, selfishness and flesh. That's what he's dealing with. So if you keep it in the context, love hopes with expectations towards others. And this hope knows no pessimism. But I want you to make sure you understand, this is not a fleshly characteristic of a flesh optimism. That's not what I'm saying. The grace of God has so transformed the person who has this love that he hopes that that grace will do the same to the person. He's believing all things. He's hoping all things. He's just not going to give up. Human failure is just not final. It doesn't give up. It doesn't give up. Roy Hessian taught me more about this than any human being ever lived because of the love of Christ that was so manifested in his life. You know, I've mentioned him how many times because I almost remember everything he ever said to me. I'll tell you why. Because I've never seen a man as humble as he was so filled with God's love that rather than talk about the wrong that somebody's done, he'd rather talk about the grace that God can give to them. And he preached a message when he was here years ago and I sat there with tears streaming down my face. The agains of grace, how God never gives up on us. The agains of, if God would have given up on Israel, Israel wouldn't have made it a month. But God never gave up on them. And he never gives up on us. 
as he manifests that never giving up through people who have his love. They don't give up on us either because it's not them, it's God in them. And they're hoping all things that that person can change, that that person will change. They're, They're believing that. They're believing that the God in them will triumph before it's over. Love hopes all things. Well, you've got to then add the next one, the fifth one, and they're all, they're all so beautifully woven together. It's like a fabric. Love endures all things. Love endures all The word endure is epomeno. Epo means under. Meno means to remain, to remain up under. To whatever's coming your way, to remain up under. Whatever pain, whatever pressure, you remain up under. God's love enables you to endure all things. It would be interesting to note that in James chapter 1 it says, Count it all joy, brethren. And he talks about <laughs> enduring and trial. He said, Endurance worketh forth patience. You know, that endurance is the same word, epomeno. It's God's love causing you to be able to endure. Why? Because you believe all things. You hope all things. All these things are tied together. You're just trusting that God will triumph in the end of it. This hope this, this endurance, rather, is feeding right off of the hope that we just looked at. In the secular Greek, the word is used of a military unit pinned down, holding on to the very last, enduring the pain and everything and the losses to the very end. I don't know if you saw Saving Private Ryan. I never talk about movies in the pulpit, but I just want to talk about that first 25-minute segment that they took actually from World War II scene. My dad was in World War II. He's on a destroyer escort and uh, was in quite a few of those kind of situations, and that was just real. That was real. They, they even had to have counselors for veterans to go see that thing because it was so vivid of what actually went on in that war. But those guys, I mean, one guy's arm being blown off, and he picks it up with in shock, picks it up with his hand, and, and, it, and most of this was actual footage that they just somehow took and wove it into this thing of a bunch of, of a group of men that went, were under orders and they held their position. Even though all the pain and all the, the losses that they had to take, they bore up under. They didn't run. They stayed there. That's what love does. Love bears up under to the very end. No matter how much pain, no matter how the losses, how you count your losses, no matter what, love bears up under. This, is, this love is awesome, isn't it, folks? It's, it's awesome. You say, where in the world is it? It's only in people surrendered to Christ because it only comes from Him. You couldn't manufacture this in a hundred years. We could have a course on how to love your brother. It doesn't work. What we've got to learn to do is so surrender to God that God who is love, not filled with love, not, a, not like love, He is love, manifests that love through us. The same kind of love that He dealt with us because He's a God of long-suffering with us is the same kind He gives to others. And it's a love that endures It's a love that bears up under no matter how bad it gets. The love is still there. It's the greatest quality in the world. And Paul, knowing that, now wraps it up. And he says in verse 8, Love never, what? Fails. Never fails. It never fails. Oh, Wayne, you're too simplistic. You and the apostle Paul, you think everything's solved with a sentence. (laughs) No, I'm not that stupid. I know the sentence is right, very profound, but I do know it takes a whole lot more to get us to that place. I know that. I know that. But it never fails. We've seen what what it's like in its absence, terrible. We've seen what it's like with its presence, and that's what you want. That's what you want. That's what you want a church to exemplify is that kind of love. And now in comparison to every other quality known to man, love never fails. 
Love will never have an end to it. The word for fails there is the word that comes from the little word pipto, P-I-P-T-O. And pipto means to fall. Actually, it has more of the idea of stumbling and then to fall, the actual act of stumbling and then to fall. It's the word used in uh, James chapter 1 when he says, count it all joy when you encounter. It's the same word, pipto. You stumble into and you fall as a result of it. You're, you're in the midst of it before you even realize you're there. But the word pipto used in secular Greek was used of a leaf falling off of a tree, decaying and vanishing away. In other words, love will never go away. Love will never fall. Love will never decay because it's who God is. Love will never in any way go away because it's God and who his character is. God's love never fails. It's us who fail, but his love never fails. It's who he is in us. Now let's put some practical hands on this thing. Let's hold it. We've gone far enough. Let me, just, let me just ease back a little bit and let's bring it down to where we all live. We know what it is now. We know what it's not. We know in the context of Corinth that it's something they hadn't even seen before because it's only what God can produce in lives that are, are not chasing gifts but surrendered to Christ, the giver. Now, when it's there, how do I get it? How do I get it? I mean, I could go to several places in Scripture this morning to show us how we get it. Let me, let me start with the, with the principle. The principle is this. Before you can ever get it, you've got to realize you can't do what this love does. You, you, it's foreign. It's not natural to our flesh. That's what you've got to first realize. When I was in Germany, I shared the illustration of a little gal that walked up. By the way, the exact phrase was said to me when I was in the Philippines by a little Filipino. came up to me and said the very same thing. I thought, this is interesting because I'm not saying it, yet evidently God's saying it. And she walked up to me in Germany and she said, Wayne, she said, let me see if I got this right. Tears streaming down her face. She said, let me see if I got this right. I said, okay, shoot. She said, I better I write everything down. <laughs> and she's real intense and she's very, I, I, very, she was dotting every I and crossing every T. And I said, okay, what, what is it? She said, I cannot do good. Is that correct? I said, that's exactly right. There's no good thing that dwelleth in your flesh. I meaning me apart from the empowerment of Jesus Christ. Okay. She said, well, let me see the second thing then. If that's right, I can't do good but I can surrender to his goodness. Is that right? And I thought, not only is it right, that's profound. What the church of Corinth needed to understand is how much Paul loved them, trying to bring them back to truth, and he's trying to help them to understand. All you've got to learn is if you just surrender to the one who is love, then he will manifest that love in and through you. You can't love like this apart from his spirit producing it in your life. Oh, how do I do that? Go with me to Ephesians chapter 3 if you would. And I just want to practically show you. Now, we could go other places, but this is one very familiar to me, and I want it to be familiar to you. Why is it the church of Corinth could not grasp what Paul was saying? Why, why is it they weren't living in this every day? It tells you right here. Because the church of Corinth, just as much a Gentile city as the church of Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, Paul writing to the Ephesians says something a little different, but yet this brings about the same point. It says in verse 16 of chapter 3 of Ephesians, I pray that he would grant you, he's praying for them, I pray that he would grant you as a gift that you don't deserve, but as a show of his goodwill towards you, according to the riches of his glory, man, I want to go back and preach that, to be strengthened with power. Now what is that power? It's the word dunamis, dynamite, ability. We get the word dynamite, dynamo from it. 
It's the ability you don't have unless you're strengthened in the inner man. He says that you're strengthened with power through his spirit, where? In the inner man. I'm so grateful he put that there instead of the outer man. Paul's already said the outer man is decaying. It's the inner man that we're growing stronger. So it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how diseased you are. It doesn't matter how weak you are. The strengthening takes place in the inner man. You see, as long as you live, it can happen. This ability that God wants to give you. He says, with power through his spirit in the inner man. Now, verse 17 to me answers verse 16. How do you do it? That little word, so that, throws you. It makes, you, makes it look like so that Christ may dwell in your heart. In other words, I've got to be strengthened in the inner man by the Spirit of God before Christ can dwell in my heart by faith. But that word, word doesn't mean so that or in order that. It's, it's really Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith. In other words, here's the key to verse 16. I've got to let him dwell in my heart by faith. Now, to the church of Corinth and to the church of Ephesus, what does that mean? Well, it has a lot to hear. The word dwell does not mean indwell. He indwelt me at salvation. So it's not him coming to live in me. He's already there. But it's the word that has the idea to be down home. Matter of fact, kata, and then the little word for home, down home. Be at home where he is. In other words, if I want to this love to be manifest in my life, I have got to learn to accommodate Christ in every area of my heart. The word heart used about 139 times in the New Testament, but three of them, that's all I'll bother you with, three of them have to do with the room of our thoughts. It says over in Luke, it says, Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their hearts. You say, that should be mine's way. No, 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 wait a minute. Hebrews says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut asunder, sword, uh, spirit and, and soul, able to cut asunder, bones and marrow, able to cut asunder the thoughts and the what? The intentions of the heart. The heart has everything to do with the thoughts. So the room of my thoughts, am I accommodating Christ in the room of my thoughts? Well, not only that, we go over to Matthew and he says, you must forgive one another as I've forgiven you. You must, from your heart, from your heart. Well, I thought forgiveness was just what you said to somebody. No, 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 no. Must go a lot deeper than that. And so we see the, not only the room of our thoughts, but we see the room of our attitudes towards others have got to, have got to accommodate the, the living presence of Christ in us. And then we find in Matthew, or, or rather John 14, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God the Father, you believe also in me. Don't let your hearts be troubled in the area of your emotions. And you can just walk through the, the different arenas of your heart. And what I've got to learn to do and what you've got to learn to do is come to the place in these areas as they surface in my life. I don't have to go find them. Don't worry. They'll find me. And when they come up, accommodate the very presence of Christ in that area. Now, how do you do that? He tells you. He says that, they, that, he, may be, that he may dwell in your hearts through faith. Here we go. Here we go. Faith. You can't, you can't separate faith and love. Faith is that willingness to bow down and be submissive to whatever he says. In whatever arena you're dealing with, if it's an area of your thoughts and you're still struggling with them and being defeated, evidently you haven't given him supremacy in that area. You haven't been willing to submit to what his word has to say. Well, if it's the area of your emotions or area of your attitudes... We've got to learn to accommodate the holy presence of God in our lives. It's the same thing he says in Ephesians 5.18. Be ye filled with the Spirit of God. Be ye controlled by the Spirit of God. But now wait a minute, I don't want to stop there. 
when we get to the point of surrender, remember we're talking about the fruit of a surrendered life? Look at the next part of the prayer in, in verse 17. As he comes to that little semicolon, then he says, and that you being rooted and grounded in what? What does your Bible say? Love. What kind of love? The very love we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. Whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's forget everybody else and how we're supposed to love them. Let's come back to this thing. Rooted and grounded in love. Now that word rooted means rooted. <laughs> you know what the, when, a, when the roots of a plant get down into the soil, what does those roots do? It sucks up the nourishment back into the plant. The plant grows from the nourishment that the roots have buried themselves into. Whoa. You mean the thing that nourishes my life is the very love of God? Hey, I thought you were talking about loving being something I did to somebody else. <laughs> Wait a minute. No, it starts with what someone has done for you. That you're rooted in that love. That ought to be nourishing your every day that God loves you. You don't have to do anything to cause him to love you. You do what you do because he already loves you. Well, that's a different twist, isn't it? But not only that, it's grounded in love. The word has the idea of established. <laughs> I planted a tree for 90 years ago. The first praise pageant we ever had, that afternoon I was planting trees and almost was late for the praise pageant. And I think that's why I forgot those little black things that go in your tux. And that's why they fussed at me and said I didn't have a full tux on. But I was trying to plant a tree. Dinah said, dig a deep hole. Did I dig a deep hole? I'm a literalist, man. You tell me and I'm going to do it. It was deep. You could have buried a Volkswagen in it. <laughs> It took me more time to fill it back in than it did put the tree in. And I drug that heavy tree with those big roots on it out there. And I dropped it in there. Covered that up. Boy, we watched that tree grow. And by the way, it's still out there in that house. We sold that house, but it's still there. And that 100-mile-an-hour wind that came through here one time, remember the tornado came up through and it's still there. Blew up other, other tree down, but it's still there. Something I learned about watching that tree those roots got down in there and nourished that tree, but the root system and the soil around it also became that which grounded it, established it. No matter what wind blew, it stood. Oh, so are you with me? You understand what I'm saying here? Now do you understand how love does not give up, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things? The wind tries to blow it down. <laughs> I'm rooted and grounded in, in his love. And as long as I'm allowing him to dwell in my heart by faith, then that love is going to not only nourish me, but hold me up. Now watch, watch. Let's go to verse 18. That you might be able to comprehend. The word comprehend is really apprehend. It means to receive it for yourself. With all the saints, what is? The breadth, how wide is it? The length, how far back does it go? The height, how far up does it go? And the depth of what? He tells you in verse 19. And to know, and the word know, it means to know by experience. To know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Now, folks, let me show you something. In that passage, a Christian never knows that he's rooted or grounded in God's love this way. That's why he never treats others the same way. Because he doesn't comprehend it. He doesn't, he doesn't apprehend it. He doesn't know it by experience until he surrenders. But when he surrenders, he steps into a dimension of understanding the love of God that he's never known before. He's so overwhelmed at God's love for him that he's willing to release it to others that are around him. 
It doesn't start with me loving my brother. It starts with God's loving me and my returning that love. And then God in me loves others through me. You say, Wayne, are there any wounds in your life this morning from people not having loved you? <laughs> oh, I'd love to get off in that again and write a book. Sure they are. Just like there are wounds in your life. Harvest House has asked me to write another book. I think that's hilarious. I never wanted to write the first one. But if I ever come up with another book, I'm going to call it Victim or Victor. Because all of us have been victimized by the fleshly so-called love of this world. And it's killed us. But if we're victors, God won't let us live as victims. You see, it doesn't start with how I'm being treated. No, sir, that is not the premise at all. Listen, that doesn't even matter. No, sir, it's how am I treating others. No matter my gift, no matter my ability, no matter anything else, it just doesn't matter. If the love is not there, there is no surrender in that person's life. Period, school's out, everybody out of the pool. I mean, it's over. There's nothing else to be said. Nothing. Nothing. If I was a Corinthian church right now, I'd be on my face as far down as I could possibly get, repenting and asking God to cleanse me and get back in touch in my life so that I could actually really be a part of what he's doing, not what I've come up with and ask him to bless. It's a big difference. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 